Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. The meaning of the birth of Christ becomes so dear to us this time of the year as we look to all of those circumstances surrounding his coming. We are so thankful for the faithful who celebrated his birth back in those days gone by and who have given us their witness that we could benefit from it. Bless our hearts tonight. May we rejoice with each other and in the outpouring of your spirit upon us and the answering of prayers as we have heard Judy demonstrate tonight in her testimony and, and others of us who have seen the Lord work marvelous things in our lives. And we continue, our Father, to, to wait upon you for the outpouring of your Spirit upon us as individuals and upon us as a church. May this church grow and advance in the glory of your name as we proclaim the gospel from week to week. Direct our activities this night, we would pray in Christ's name. Amen. Fools and wise men might seem like a rather trivial title, but I want us to look at three different people, or in two cases, groups of people, and see their reaction to the birth of Christ. The first, of course, we would have to recognize is Herod. And we see him as a very hostile individual. Then we see the chief priests and the scribes, and we find that they knew the scripture and what the Bible had to say about the birth of Christ, but found themselves in an attitude of considerable indifference. And then we see the wise men, or the magi, as we have come to call them, who came, in fact, to worship the person that we have come to know as Jesus Christ, our Savior. So it's these three that I want us to look at. First of all, let's take a look at Herod. There were seven Herods in history. This Herod simply was the one that we call Herod the Great, who succeeded in getting himself appointed as the king of Galilee, He was appointed by Julius Caesar. It was a political appointment. His father had an appointment as a governor of a section of Israel. And his father succeeded in getting Julius Caesar to appoint his son that we came to have come to know as Herod the Great to be the king of Galilee. Now, he was not a Jew. You remember the history. The Roman Empire was in charge of the entire world. But into areas like Judea and Galilee, the Roman emperor, whoever the the emperor might be, the Caesar might be, in this case it was Julius, would appoint someone to be the governor or the king or some other title, the ruler of that particular province. And he normally would select somebody of the same nationality as the province over which he was going to rule. But in this case, 
It will not happen. Herod the Great was from Edom. He was an Edomite, not Jewish at all. I want, I want to you know, listen a little bit about him to refresh your memory. You've heard many of these things before, I suppose. But Herod was one of the most wicked men the world has ever known. Absolutely wicked. His wife's brother, Aristobulus, is the first person that I would like for you to, to notice. He simply had this man drowned. He just didn't like him. So he ordered that he be drowned, his own wife's brother, and then he directed that there be a big funeral, a fabulous funeral. And at the funeral, King Herod pretended to weep. Very, very sincerely he weeped. He made the tears flow in mockery of his son, of his brother-in-law. But to the people, it looked like he was genuinely serious in his weeping. It wasn't long after that he had put Aristobulus to death that he had his own wife killed and her mother. Now, I can understand her mother, but how do you, how do you explain the wife? You know, we all seem to want to get rid of our mother-in-laws. Maybe you could understand that a little bit if you, if, if you looked at Herod. But he had his mother, or her mother, his wife, and two of his own sons put to death just shortly after he killed this brother-in-law. Five days before Herod died, he had his third son put to death. He also at the same time ordered that all of the renowned people in Jerusalem would be arrested and put in jail. And when he died, at the moment of his death, all of those people were to be executed. Why? Because he wanted somebody to cry on the day of his death. There was nobody going to weep for the death of King Herod, but there was tears that day because of the the numbers of people that he ex had executed at the moment of his death. All right, let's leave him alone a little bit. This is the kind of character that we're dealing with. The same Herod that we shall see, or if, and I'll say it now in case I don't later, had all of the male boys in Bethlehem killed, hoping that he could get the Christ child. Tremendous story of all these little babies. Okay, onto the scene comes some men from some other place. The wise men. The magi, which means magician. Who are they? Where do they come from? How many of them are there? Well, in our play that we will put on next Sunday night, we're going to have three people, I think there's three are there not, who are representing the wise men. We have over the years used this number as to be the number, I think probably based on the fact 
but they presented three different gifts, and we would assume that each one presented one. There is nothing in the scripture that tells us there were three. There might have only been two. All we know it was men, and when you get to two, you've got into the plural. But they very, they very likely was quite a number of them, really. Most likely, there were, there were several. Where did they come from? These men first show on the scene of history, clear back in the 7th century B.C., 700 years before Christ. They were a tribe in the Midian nation. Historians say that they very likely were the descendants of Noah's son, Shem. And they grew up, became a very intelligent, a very wise group of people who were astrologers. They studied the stars. They practiced sorcery. They uh, worshipped in the occult. They believed in demons and demon possession and magic and all this stuff. This was the origin of this group of people. They were magicians. They could perform many, many magical uh, functions. But they were very, very wise. And in that, in the Old Testament history, any king had around him a group of people like this who were wise, who could interpret dreams, who could perform magic, such as Pharaoh, uh, had his wise men uh, do various magic tricks to match Moses there in Egypt. And Herod had his, and every king around them, Nebuchadnezzar had his, uh, and all the other kings of the Old Testament seemed to have his group of advisors who were the wise men, the magicians, the astrologers. They were from this group had developed over the years. I mentioned Nebuchadnezzar. You remember when, when Daniel was in Babylon as a captive and all the problems that he had. And the old king had a dream, and his wise men could not interpret the dream. And finally, Daniel was called. Somebody remembered that he had been able to interpret a dream, and Daniel was called. And Daniel was able to interpret. Similar to what Pharaoh did in Egypt, when Joseph was able to interpret. And so the king decided that all of his wise men, since they could not give the interpretation of his dream, ought to be put to death. And Daniel interceded for these men. Now on the surface, you would think that Daniel would have said, that's good enough for them. They worship the demons. They practice magic. They're sorcerers. They do all these evil things. Kill them. Daniel did not. If you look in the second chapter of Daniel in the 24th verse, you will discover that Daniel interceded for these men and begged the king not to kill them. That seemed like a foolish thing to do. It is not in the Bible, but there are some evidences in history that out of this act, these men respected Daniel because he saved their life. And there is a good possibility that Daniel taught 
these wise men the Old Testament and the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ and his coming. And it is out of this group that these men came seeking the very person that Daniel must have told them about. Else where did they get their information? As I say, there's nothing in Scripture that backs that up. But this is, is a, a good possibility from, uh, from my study of, of Old Testament history and the things that, uh, and the secular history of the same time. They came inquiring, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Not born to be king, but born king. Now they assumed, as they came into town, they were wealthy men, riding perhaps on camels and with all, with all kinds of finery and their servants with them, great entourage came into Jerusalem and they stopped at the first street corner and said to the people standing there, could you tell us where this Jesus, your, your king, is, is born, where he is, the baby that is born king? I don't know. I didn't know we had one born. Isn't it strange that people who ought to know are not aware that there's a Savior. If a group of people from far off Orients came riding into our town tonight and stopped on our street corner and inquired of us, where is the Savior that we've heard about? Can you direct us to him? Could you give the directions? Could you point the way? I think these men were quite disappointed. They began to look at each other and wonder, well, what is this? These people don't even know. The word finally got down to, to Herod. And we'll come back to that, moment, that story in just a moment. But before we get to Herod again, let's look at how did they get there. Now, remember I've already said that I believe that probably they got their learning about the birth of the Messiah for the Jewish people, possibly from Daniel himself, and then build on from there. But the scripture says a star led them, went before them, until it finally came and stood over where the young child was in the house. What is this star? Scientists tried to explain it, but it probably was the coming together of Jupiter and Saturn when their paths crossed and they were linked together, and so it was one bold bit of light. And I suppose Jupiter and Saturn may very well have come together on that day and time. I think that could be proven by scientific measurements that that possibly happened. But that doesn't explain how the star stood over the house and pointed to that house. That star up there, Jupiter and Saturn, are too many millions of miles away to pinpoint. We don't have the capabilities even in today's science to pinpoint a spot from Jupiter to a given spot, a given house, a spot that big upon Earth that the star would have stood over with the instruments they had, 
Both could not even, uh, begun to have said, this is the house as opposed to the house next door. So I do not believe that it was a, a coming together, a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn that possibly did this. Others would say it was a meteor or a comet or some other body of the heavens. It may be, but there is no explanation in the scripture that it was. So let's make some other suggestions. A couple of possibilities to think beyond this. First of all, oftentimes the word star in the, in the Bible, and particularly in the Old Testament, is referring not to a physical celestial. Uh, uh, to, to, to is that the word I want? Uh, being in the heaven, but it's referring to something intangible that we might call the glory of the Lord. The same thing that happened to the shepherds when the angels appeared to the shepherds out on the, out on the hillside. They didn't see a star. They didn't see a physical body of any sort. But there was a light, and it was described as the glory of the Lord. And that's all the description that we actually have. You might go back to the Old Testament when Moses went up into the mountain and there received the Ten Commandments. And when he came down, his face was shining like the glory of the Lord. Or at the time of Jesus' transfiguration, when the three disciples were with the Lord on the mountaintop, and there he met Moses and Elijah, and the scripture says that his face shined with the light, as, as, as white as light. Or we could refer to Saul's experience when he was converted on the road to Damascus. There was a light that shined down from heaven. A couple of things. Number one, God gives his light to shine upon us when we are in tune with him, he will guide us and lead us as he wants us to go. And we could describe that guiding as the glory of the Lord. And there may be nothing physical to be seen. I think it's entirely possible that the, the light that guided them came from their heart, not from up here somewhere. It was God saying, you go with the way I want you to go. You follow my lead. This is a possibility. The other possibility is it might be something like the pillar of fire that the Hebrew people experienced in the wilderness. As they traveled those 40 years, during the day there was a cloud that shadowed them so that they could have the comfort of the cloud. At night there was a light that led them. If there was a physical light, a physical star, as far as I'm concerned, it was a spatial star prepared for a spatial purpose. It was not Jupiter or Saturn or Mars or, or a comet or anything else. It was something that God prepared for a spatial purpose, for one purpose only. And when that purpose was fulfilled, the star was taken away. My whole point is that God leads his people 
who, de- who believe in him and who want to, to follow his leadership. These men were true seekers after God. God led them. These men heard and these men responded to the Lord. You see, the star left them for a little bit in Jerusalem. Nobody else makes mention of the star, just about the wise men. Why didn't Herod see the star? Why didn't the common people of the town see the star? Only the wise men saw the star. Because God was giving them special leadership. They were seeking. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star. And we've come to worship him. Well, nobody knew. Herod got word of their being in town. And he sent for them. Herod was jealous. He was afraid that this new king was going to take his throne. And he wanted nobody taking his throne. And the scripture says that everybody in town was afraid. I think two reasons maybe they were afraid. Number one, they weren't sure what Herod was going to do next. Who else was he going to kill? What rage was he going to go in? And we find that he did go into a rage and send his soldiers to destroy all the babies. But I think secondly that people were uneasy with Herod because they weren't really quite certain why this entourage from the Orient had driven into town. What their purpose was. It might be some other purpose than something for good. So Herod calls his chief priests. The chief priests were the, were the leaders of the church. Now they got their position by political favoritism. They could even buy, if they had enough money at times, buy this position. It was the supreme position within the synagogue and the temple. They had the power to arrest and the power to put in jail anybody they saw fit. The only thing the high priest could not do was condemn to death. And you remember we found this out at the crucifixion of Christ. They arrested him. They tried him, but they couldn't condemn him to death. It had to be done by the Roman rulers. So they could not execute. The other group that Herod called were the scribes. These were the lawyers. They were the religious scholars. Now, they could quote the scripture from beginning to end. They knew all about what the Bible had to say about the birth of the Messiah. But they didn't have a bit of interest in the world. No interest. You do not find the people of the church going to Bethlehem to worship the Christ child. You do not find Herod going to worship. The only people we find that are going to worship are these strangers from the Orient. The chief priests and the scribes expressed nothing but indifference, lack of concern. And folks, if there is anything that describes our society today about the birth of Jesus Christ, it's the word indifference. The church is indifferent to his birth. 
It's a sad commentary on the very people who have to know do not express any interest in celebrating the birth of Christ. These men did not care. They said, well, yes, the scripture says he's to be born in Bethlehem. And they even quoted it word for word. And Herod called these men and said, you go and you search for him. And then you come and tell me where he is so that I might come and worship too. Well, you know that they did not because the angel had told them not to. But the wise men find the star again just outside the city, the leadership. I would suggest to you the reason they lost the leadership of the star when they got into Jerusalem was that they ceased to follow the Lord's direction and they thought they could find direction from man. And God withdrew his direction. When we want to find our direction in the lives of people, we don't need God. He'll withdraw from us or we withdraw from him. It is when we stay with God's will that he will give us continual direction. These men stopped for a little while in their process of following the direction they had been given, and so the direction left them. When they got back on track, then there the star was again, and it came and stood over where the young child was. They went in and worshipped. I mentioned this morning, and I'll just go over it very quickly. When they found him, they worshipped Jesus Christ. They did not worship Mary. <coughs> It is the Christ child that is the important one. And they opened up to him gifts. They gave him three kinds of gifts. They gave him gold, they gave him frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is the most precious of all metals, I suppose, even yet today in our society. Gold is, it represents that which is of tremendous value. Frankincense was a, an incense that was used in royalty a sweet-smelling incense that they used at inaugurations and things of that nature to celebrate royalty. And myrrh was a perfume that was used and mixed with some other things, particularly with wine, to make preparation of a dead body for burial. They would have used it in then making preparation for Christ's own body to be buried. So they brought gold to honor his royalty, they brought frankincense to honor his deity, and they brought myrrh to honor his humanity. What do we bring? Are we wise men or foolish? Are we indifferent or do we earnestly seek to worship the Christ child? Are we belligerent like Herod, or do we really want to know that we might come and worship? We'll have one of those three attitudes. There are lots of people today who are belligerent, who are mean, and who would destroy the Christ child if they could. But the most people fall in that middle category, the indifferent, it really doesn't make any difference to them one way or the other. Or are we the wise who come seeking? We don't know too much about the birth of the Christ child, and we're expecting somebody to guide us, but we want to find him. We 
want to worship him. I pray you and I as a brother will worship Christ child this season. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.com sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.